Well, um, I'm going to be here this week, and if you don't like that, I'm sorry, because I'm here next week, too. <laughs> um, but uh, I am a paleontologist. Um, I'm also the youth pastor at our church, um, and I, so I don't know which one I spend more time talking about, um, whether we talk about fossils or scripture more, and it gets, you know, um, I end up talking about fossils during youth group and stuff. It's, it's fun. Um, but, uh, next week I'll be talking about, um, for Sunday school, we'll be doing, um, uh, fossil hominids, so like human evolution and those kinds of questions. And how do we understand that, um, from scripture and what, what did we do with those fossils? And then, um, I'll be talking about, um, Romans eight and the fall and the curse and, uh, those kinds of things for the, the main message today though, you'll notice I'm talking about Lazarus and the rich man, and that might strike you as odd. Um, you might thought, oh, we're going to be in Genesis or something, but the reality is, um, our understanding of creation, our understanding of um, those kinds of doctrines are throughout the scriptures. Um, it's not just the first little section there that, that touches on it. And um, specifically, I was asked if I could address um, apologetics and issues in apologetics. And whenever I think about apologetics, this is immediately the passage that comes to mind. There's a few others, but this, this one really stands out to me. And so we're going to be looking at that this morning. Um, but first, I, I just wanted to kind of tell you a little bit about my experience um, as a professor at the master's university teaching gen ed science class, okay? Um, I really like teaching gen ed. It can be frustrating sometimes because you get people of all different backgrounds in there. And um, some people haven't had a math class, I think ever. Um, I'm really <laughs> suspicious, but um, it's interesting, you know? But at the beginning of my essentials of geology class, um, I always, I'm thinking, okay, some of these students, this is the only science class they're going to get in college. Like, this is it. Um, and so I really want them to have, to get some certain things out of it. Um, I want them to understand what science is. I want them to understand what it can and cannot do. I want them to understand how God's glory is on display in science. Um, and so early on in the class, I really want to emphasize the philosophy of science. What is science? How does it work? Why do we do it? Those kinds of questions. And... Um, I ask them, what is the purpose of science? That's one of the things we talk about. And I say, okay, and maybe even more specifically, what's the purpose of creation science? You know, what, what is the, why do we do that? And very, very commonly, the answer I get is something like, people do science to prove the Bible right. Or um, creation science is about proving evolution wrong and proving God right. That's what I often hear. Um, but let me tell you something that is a very unfortunate, wrong understanding um, that unfortunately has spread through a lot of evangelical churches today. Let me tell you, science cannot prove the Bible right. It can't. That's not what it does. That's outside the realm of science. Um, science can only deal with the physical. And um, uh, thinking like that reveals kind of a low view of scripture. You know what? The Bible doesn't need science to be right. The Bible doesn't need me or you to be right. It is right. It's truth. It came from God, right? It's the standard of truth. It's right regardless of whether you or I recognize it as right. It's still true. Um, now, you can make discoveries in science that are consistent with the claims of the Bible, but that doesn't prove the Bible right. Does that make sense? Okay, let me, let me use a little bit of an analogy. So um, let's say you're doing some archaeology, okay, which is different from paleontology. I want to point that out. They're not the same thing. Um, not Indiana Jones. Okay, so um, archaeology... Let's say I want to prove that George Washington crossed the Delaware River during the uh, Revolutionary War. Okay, you remember the famous painting um, where they're going across there. Um, so what could I do in science 
to help me discover that? Well, we could look around the river for artifacts, right? Maybe we find musket balls or like um, pieces of clothing or um, different things like that um, from the right time period, right? Maybe we could look at bodies of colonial soldiers on both sides of the river. Um, so we know that they were there. Uh, we could potentially, if we found a body, maybe, just maybe we could analyze DNA. Probably be contaminated, but it's possible, right, that we could do that. Um, you know what we could even do? We could even figure out what boats they built back then, build a boat, get in it, rate for the right conditions, weather, time of year, everything, and go across the river, right? We could do that if we wanted. But at the end, what have we proven? Okay, we, did we prove that he actually crossed? No. All we proved was that it could be done. It could have happened, right? That's what we have proven. Um, it's plausible. But there are other possibilities that could fit that observed data just as well, right? Um, the only way we'd actually know what happened is that we'd have to look at historical documents. And we'd have to either trust whether those historical documents were true or not. Now, um, the physical evidence can help us confirm or deny certain ideas in there, but they ultimately can't prove them. We have to take the historical source as it is, right? And unfortunately, some people have, have run with that and have said like, oh, historical sciences like geology and paleontology and archaeology, they're not really science because they don't deal with experiments. And it's like, well, okay, first of all, we do experiments, so just calm down a minute. Um, but <laughs> second of all, like it is science. It's just a different way, right? You're not looking at what's happening right now or in the future. You're looking at what happened in the past. You're still using a lot of the same methodology. It's still science. It's just different. And as a result, there's more ambiguity. There's more possibilities available to you. Um, so what we can see then is that the historical sciences in and of themselves, if you just have them, you cannot prove or disprove the accuracy of the word of God or events in the word of God. Um, they can lend support. They can maybe cast doubt. But in and of themselves, they cannot prove or disprove scripture. Okay. Um, so we should not think of using science to prove scripture. That's a backwards way of thinking. Let me make sure we understand that. Okay, secondly, this is what I get really passionate about. Okay, science has so much more value than this perceived value, okay? Um, I would be a paleontologist. I guess this is like a hypothetical, you know, split universe kind of thing. I would be a paleontologist regardless of whether there was an origins debate. Okay, um, whether there was a creation evolution debate or not, I would still want to do this. Why? Because I like to study God's creation. I enjoy seeing new and fantastic expressions of God's glory um, in his creations. I think that's really exciting. Um, I like to expose other people to the manifestations of his glory that we get out of the rocks. Um, it's so much more than just an apologetics tool. And if we reduce it to just like that, then we're like a person who only ever uses an oven to warm their socks, right? Like... <laughs> There's a lot more you can do with that, you know, um, and that's, we don't want to be that person. Okay. So all of this to say, where are we going? How should we think about apologetics as a Christian? That's where we're going. After all, if Jesus really did rise from the dead and he did, by the way, then why doesn't everybody believe it? If God really did create the world and he did, then shouldn't we be able to see undeniable proof in science that it really happened? That's often how we think about it, right? Well, to inform our thinking in this area, we obviously have to go to scripture. And so I'm going to take you to a place, like I said, we might not automatically connect with these issues, um, but it is very informative on these issues. And we're also going to get a lesson on the afterlife um, and connection. So like a two for one deal. So 
Turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Okay. Um, and in Luke 16, we're going to be mainly focusing on the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, or Lazarus and the rich man. Um, and you can find that um, in verse, starting in verse 19, although we'll, we'll look around at some of the context too. But um, go ahead and read with me, um, just in your minds. You don't have to read out loud. It's okay. I'll do that. Um, Luke 16, and we're going to start in verse 19. This is Jesus speaking. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores. And longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table, besides even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, then send him to my father's house for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Okay, that's the word of God. All right. Now, if you look at the surrounding context, we're going to see... You know, we don't just want to think like, oh, there's a story. Like, what, it, what is it? What is going on here? Right. Um, and you might already be a little curious about this whole thing. Right. Like, I didn't see fossils anywhere in that passage. <laughs> there was some taphonomy, but um, no fossils. So let's go back to verse 14. OK, here's the immediate context. Now, the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. What things were they listening to? You can go back. And um, Jesus tells the parable of the unrighteous steward, and we don't have time to get into that today. Um, and then he kind of goes into um, saying, you cannot serve God in wealth, okay, is what happens right before that. So the Pharisees hear this, they scoff at him. Verse 15, and Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. You think, what? Like he's like talking about adultery and marriage and divorce. And then, oh yeah, and there's this one guy and this other guy and they died. This is really like, it seems like kind of just chopped up pieces put together. Okay. But it's really not out of the blue. Okay. I want to show you there, there's, there's a uh, progression of thought that's happening here. Okay. Um, 
So we were just talking about money's bad, and then we started talking about divorce, and suddenly we're talking about heaven and hell. So what's going on here? Okay, well, remember, one of the things that's being emphasized in this parable is wealth, right? The, the rich man is very rich. Lazarus is poor. There's, there's definitely a discrepancy that's happening there, and that's, that's important. Um, so the first thing Jesus is establishing is that the Pharisees were guilty of self-justification and self-centeredness, right? That's what's going on in verse 15. Um, they saw their wealth as proof of their piety, okay? They thought because if someone is wealthy, obviously God is blessing him, right? That's kind of the thinking. And if somebody doesn't have wealth, obviously God's blessing is not upon them. That's kind of the way they were thinking about this, okay? Now, that's very, very wrong thinking, by the way. This is exactly where Job's friends get into, right? That the whole time he had wealth, then he was, you know, was good. But once it was taken away, obviously you did something wrong. Obviously you're a bad person. Um, there are other reasons for, for wealth and for poverty, um, not just the blessing of God in that way. But uh, so, yeah, they saw their wealth as proof that they were good people, that God loved them, that they deserved it. But in reality, Jesus says they served their master of money rather than the master of God. Right. And that's what he said. in, like I said, in verse 13, no servant can serve two masters for either. He will hate the one and love the other or else he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Okay. So they thought Pharisees thought they could get away with performing outwardly, but they misunderstood that their hearts were wicked and condemned before God. They could fool other people, but they couldn't fool God, right? They were always about fooling other people, looking really good on the outside, keeping all these commands, but they were never fooling God. And Jesus is pointing that out. And so Jesus then takes them to, well, let me show you the times you're in, Pharisees. Let's talk about this. Okay, so he's talking about in verse 16. He says, the law and the prophets were until John. Somewhat John the Baptist here. The idea is that John was the last of the old covenant, okay? Everything in the old covenant was preparing people for what was to be in the new covenant with the arrival of the Messiah and his kingdom, right? John was the, the making the path straight for the way of the Lord. And so Jesus is saying, hey guys, we're in this time now. And we know that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament pointed to Christ, right? That's something that's all throughout the Old Testament. Um, it's in the New Testament as well. Christ was already fulfilling prophecy in the things he was doing. This is Christmas time, right? You already got to hear lots of fulfilled prophecy about Christ. Um, there's lots of great stuff there. And John had proclaimed that the Messiah would arrive and that his kingdom was coming with him. That was John's big message, right? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what he had to say. Okay, now Jesus says something kind of odd here. It's, a, it's an unusual phrase. He says the kingdom of God has been preached, right? John the Baptist has preached it. And everyone is forcing his way into it. It's a very unusual phrase. Um, and I, I think the interpretation I like the best is the idea that, um, not just because I like it, I think it fits the text the best. Um, the way was wide open for sinners to enter the kingdom and they're already pressing in. It's here, it's now. It's like the doors have opened and you can, you know, it's finally here is the idea. You can press into it, you can get in there. So then you're thinking, okay, well, if we've just been waiting for this moment, then what was the point of all the other stuff before it? And that's where Jesus is going to touch next. He says, okay, well, what was the law, right? This is verse 17. So it's talking about the law. The law is not void just because the kingdom's here doesn't mean that we don't have to care about the law anymore. Specifically saying the harshness of the law has not been removed because of the Messiah's arrival and the kingdom gates being open wide. In other words, the law's demands are still relentless. 
Just because the kingdom is here, just because the door is open doesn't mean you can waltz right in. Okay. The law is still there and it's still hanging over you as something you cannot keep. And Jesus is telling them that. Why? Because the Pharisees had the belief that they could keep the law. That's what they thought. They thought, if I just add these extra commands, I can keep the law and please God, right? And they had a very perverse understanding of the law. And that's why Jesus talks about divorce. Divorce is the example here. This is how you guys misuse the law, okay? If you want to see what I'm talking about, flip over to Matthew 19 really quick. Just a little side note here so you can understand Luke's progression of thought as he records the things that Jesus says, okay? Okay, look at Matthew 19 with me. We're going to look at verse 1, okay? Matthew 19, verse 1. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Okay, what's going on here? There was debate at the time among the different rabbis over whether, um, what, the, what the rules were for divorce, okay? So there was one school of thought that said, Moses just says, give him a certificate of divorce. He doesn't say why. So you can just, if she burns your food, you can divorce her. That was literally that some rabbis were saying that, okay? Other rabbis were saying, no, 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 no. It's only for sexual morality. And so there was this debate going on and they're trying to get Jesus to fall into one of these two camps because it's going to make people mad one way or the other, okay? But Jesus never falls for their traps. We'll see that. Verse four, he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus is like, guys, Why are we talking about what divorce is? You don't even understand what marriage is, right? You can't understand how divorce works unless you understand what marriage is. So let's go back, talk about what marriage is, what it's designed to be, that God joins them. So how dare you separate it, right? But then they say, well, well, hold on, verse seven. Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Right, that doesn't make any sense. Why did he do that? So Jesus explains, verse eight. He said to them, because of the hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Okay. What's going on here? It's more than just talking about marriage and divorce, although it is definitely talking about that, but this is an example of how they're misusing the word of God and the law. Okay. Their thinking was this, as long as we keep this tiny command, right? About the certificate of divorce, we can do whatever we want. As long as we haven't violated that one thing. Do you understand? It's like, he doesn't say how to do it or, um, when I can do it or why I can do it. As long as I give the certificate, we're good. But they were completely misreading the whole point of the command in the first place. Right? And that's why Jesus takes them back to Genesis. He's like, you guys are arguing about what, what conditions you can give a certificate of divorce. You don't understand what marriage is even about. Okay, so this is like when my kids, when they say stuff like, um, I say, okay, you need to get dressed, right? And because we're going to church. And so like, 
I'll come back, you know, 10 minutes later and, you know, maybe they have their underwear on or something. Um, and I'm like, I told you to get dressed. And they're like, well, you didn't say how fast to get dressed, right? You didn't say um, that you did. And then maybe I come back later and they're wearing like a t-shirt and shorts. And I'm like, what are you doing? I said, we're going to church. Well, you didn't say what I was supposed to wear for church. And it's like, well, you know what you're supposed to wear for church, right? So they're trying to find a way to do the things their sinful hearts want, but still keep the rules. Does that make sense? They're pushing the boundaries, Okay. And they think they can get away with that. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You might be obeying the rules on the outside, but your heart is very far away from the truth. Okay. Now go back to Luke 16. Okay. So this gives us some framework for this parable. It has to relate to a misunderstanding about the law and about how terrible our hearts really are. Okay. It's, it's going to relate to those two concepts. And so Jesus is going to show them how wicked their hearts are with a parable. And really, as we know, the parables are meant to be interpreted for those who have spiritual understanding. So it's ultimately about the people who are getting into the kingdom, what they can understand about the Pharisees. Although it also is biting against the Pharisees as well. So let's look at this parable. What's going on in this parable? We've got two characters. Okay. We have... Lazarus and the rich man. And I know that some of you, when I say the rich man, you just go la da 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 in your head. Okay, but just stop. Okay, you got to pay attention. All right, so Lazarus. What do we know about Lazarus? He is a poor, lame beggar. He lays outside of this rich man's house, inside the gate, right? And he's just hoping for scraps of food, and the dogs are coming and licking his sores. Okay, this is not a happy life. I want you to understand that. All right, the rich man, what do we know about him? Well, he's rich. That's pretty much what they tell us. Um, he eats a lot. He's got a nice feast. Um, and he does not help Lazarus at all. Okay, he knows Lazarus is out there. He recognizes him in the afterlife, right? So he knows who he is. Um, and he doesn't help Lazarus. Now, that's mean, not nice for sure. But notice the rich man doesn't do any other specific evil deed. Right? It's not like he murders somebody or he commits adultery or, you know, he steals a whole bunch of stuff. Basically, the only sin we see him committing is not helping Lazarus. Okay? Um, it doesn't talk about committing some heinous act of villainy. It just says he was rich and implies that he was greedy and gluttonous. But we don't see him commit any kind of a willful, you know, really hateful kind of sin. So we have these two people and they have two outcomes. Lazarus, we see, goes to... Um, paradise to Abraham's bosom. Um, the rich man goes to hell. The, the word there's Hades. Okay. Now the interesting part here is the conversation they have. Okay. And you're like, can we talk to people in hell? Okay. We'll, we'll get there. Don't worry about that right now. Okay. Um, this is a story, right? So he's telling a story and he says, the rich man talks to father Abraham, right? Now notice he doesn't say, who's that guy? He knows who that is, right? He knows it's Abraham. And notice he doesn't just call him Abraham. He calls him Father Abraham, which implies the rich man is Jewish, right? He understands that Abraham is his father. Okay, that's important for the story later. So he says, have mercy on me. Have Lazarus dip his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. He desires relief. Okay, he's in pain in hell. But notice what he asks for. 
He doesn't ask, get me out, okay? He asks for some relief. But look at that. Have Lazarus dip his finger in water and cool my tongue. Do you see? Even in hell, he still thinks that he is better than Lazarus, that Lazarus is a lesser man. Do you see that? Have him do it for me. I know you shouldn't, but, you know, have that guy who used to beg at my gate do it. So Abraham, of course, points out two things. One, hey, you guys, your roles are reversed, right? You spent all your time consumed with earthly pleasures. Look where you are now. And uh, besides, there's like a giant chasm thing, so we can't cross that. Okay, well, that's plan one down the drain, right? So then the rich man says, okay, okay. Well, now you can send Lazarus somewhere else. We're still commanding Lazarus, right? Send him to warn my five brothers so they don't come here. Okay. Why? He doesn't want his brothers to suffer. That seems like a reasonable request in some ways, right? Like, I don't want people to go to hell. Certainly people are close to me. I care about them. He's seen firsthand how bad it is. And he's like, hey, I don't want anyone to come here. And then you might be a little surprised at Abraham's response. Might seem a little unusual at first. He says, hey, they got Moses and the prophets. That's his way of saying the scriptures, right? They got the Bible. They got the Old Testament. Let them hear that. There's enough in there. And the rich man's like, no, 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 no. Father Abraham, if, if somebody comes back from the dead, of course they're going to believe. And Abraham says, no, actually, you're mistaken. If someone doesn't hear Moses and the prophets, if they don't hear the scriptures, neither will they be convinced even if someone should rise from the dead. It's a very interesting statement. And in some ways, very unexpected and a very big statement. Okay? It's going to have some really big implications, especially as we think through apologetics. But the first thing we need to do is address the main ideas in this parable. What is Jesus communicating, right? We don't just want to use this text to say what we want it to say. We want to say, what does the text actually say? Okay. Let's address one of the major things about this parable. Is this a real story or a made-up story? And you're like, oh, the Bible doesn't have made-up stories. Okay, this, the Bible is true. I'm not saying that. I'm saying people can make up stories in the Bible to communicate points, right? So is Jesus telling a real story or a made-up story? Okay, so in favor of it being a real story, we have real names here. Most of the parables never have names. It's just a dude. Well, it doesn't say a dude. A guy, you know, or a rich man, or a king, or a servant, whatever. It doesn't give somebody's name. So that's really interesting. Um, but not everyone gets a name. And also, notice the name Lazarus, okay? That's a form of Eleazar. It means whom the Lord has helped, Okay? So the significance of the name, Jesus giving him a name, right? Because he could have just said some guy, even if it was a real story. Um, but he gave him a name. Why? Because God is helping him, even though the rich man never has, right? God cares. God sees, okay? In this society this man would have been living in, he's a nobody. He's somebody to forget, to ignore. His poverty would have been seen by many of the Jews as a sign that he was cursed by God. So no one would have known his name, right? He's just somebody you, you walk past and you ignore. But God knows his name. So notice that. Who gets the name in the story? Lazarus. Not the rich man. The poor man gets the name. Okay, do you see? There's, there's a purposeful irony there. In not giving the man we would think of as important, don't give him a name. Give the man that we would think is not important, give him a name. 
Okay, so there's definitely some irony. Um, Jesus does not give the rich man a name. And remember what he said earlier, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God, right? What does the world say matters? Wealth and happiness and, you know, having everything you could ever want, which is what the rich man had. So we would consider him important and worthy of a name, but Jesus leaves it off because what that man considered important was actually an abomination to God. God knows his heart. Okay, now, in favor of it being a fake story, um, it seems very odd that people could talk to each other between heaven and hell, right? I mean, that seems very strange. Um, after all, Scripture does describe hell as being a place of outer darkness, and those are words that Jesus uses to describe hell. Um, and so I think this story, and there's, people disagree on this, and ultimately it doesn't matter for the purpose of the story, whether these events happened really or not. Um, but I think that it is a story. I think it is a, a um, story Jesus is telling very similar to the way C.S. Lewis tells the great divorce. Okay. And C.S. Lewis, the beginning of the great divorce, if you've never read it, he says like, you can't actually take a bus from hell into heaven. Okay. I don't think that really happens. Um, but he does that in the story. It's a device in the story in order to show that people from hell would hate heaven if they were there. And you'd think, no, they wouldn't. They would love it. Well, no, they don't because it's about God. It's about Jesus. It's about purity and not sin, right? And they're all about sin. They're all about, even this guy, he's still about his pleasure in hell, right? Um, he's still about um, putting himself above other people in hell. Um, he's still obsessed with his sin. So that's, it's a plot device. Okay. So I'm not going to come hard one way or another, come down hard. Uh, my personal persuasion is that the story is fictional, but like I said, it doesn't actually matter because whether Jesus was saying, hey, I know this guy, or hey, I made up this story, same point is being communicated. What was the rich man's sin? Okay, let's think about that. Because Jesus says he goes to hell. So one of the main points Jesus is communicating here is that hell is a very real place. Even though the story itself might not be real, he's using a real place um, to say it awaits sinners. And you think, once again, that guy didn't do anything that bad the way we typically think of that bad, right? Like I said, he didn't murder someone. He didn't steal something. He didn't lie recorded. You know, he didn't um, commit adultery in the story. All he does is basically just enjoy himself and ignore somebody. It's a very passive kind of thing. So what was his sin? Well, it's not being rich because Abraham was rich and Abraham's the other guy we have a name for in the story, right? Um, it was selfishness and greed, Right? I mean, that's all we know. I'm obviously, you know, I'm sure any person would have other sins, but many people would say, well, I haven't been that bad. I haven't killed anyone. I haven't purposely hurt someone, but that's not how it works. And Jesus shows that here. Selfishness alone is enough to take you to hell. Okay. And that was enough for this man. And remember who he's speaking to the Pharisees who on the outside look really great. Right. But he's saying in your hearts, there is something that is an abomination to God. You say, selfishness isn't that bad. Yeah, actually it is. It really hurts people, right? The rich man was greedy and selfish. He couldn't be bothered to help somebody right outside his gate who needed help. He didn't care. He definitely hurt someone. So Jesus shows us that even sins that are not perceptible, even sins that are not um, seemingly heinous are worthy of hell. But Jesus also tells us a little bit what hell is like. It's a place of torment, okay? The rich man is in agony. 
He mentions there being fire. He begs for relief. It is not a happy place. It is a very, very terrible place to be in. And hell is eternal. Now, it's not specifically mentioned here, although it's implied since he wants to get out and he can't, right? But Jesus explicitly says it elsewhere, okay? Uh, Matthew, you don't have to turn here, but Matthew 25, um, verse 46. Okay, listen to what Jesus says. He says, um, uh, he's talking about people that thought that they were um, on Jesus' side, but they were not. They did not help him. And in verse 46, he says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Okay? The eternal that's being used there, it's the same word both times. So if you want to believe that Jesus teaches there is eternal life for the righteous, you also must realize that he uses the same word to describe a place of eternal torment for the unrighteous. It is eternal. And notice here, once you notice about hell, there aren't second chances. Do you see that? This man isn't finding a way to weasel his way out of the situation. He's stuck there. Okay. Um, and he even wanted to go warn his brothers and he can't. Right. He's stuck. No second chances. Once you're there, you're there. Now, another thing I want you to notice about hell in this passage Notice this, many, at least many people, at least in this case, this guy, did not expect to be in hell. So many people in hell did not expect to end up there. Okay, and once again, you don't have to turn here, but think about the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. Um, and Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, cast out demons and in your name, perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. That's scary. A lot of religious good people, quotation mark there, will find themselves in hell. Remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the Pharisees. They look good on the outside. Everything about them. They, they're preaching the word of God. They're telling people to keep the commandments. They seem like really good people, but deep inside, they're not. I'm sure if you had gone to this rich guy's house, you know, you would have had a party. You would have had a really fun time. I'm sure you might have been a fun person to talk to. But his heart was awful. It was terrible. It was wicked. And I said a lot of religious good people find themselves in hell. How do we know it's a lot? It's because Jesus says the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it. The Pharisees are just like the rich men in the story. I don't want you to miss that. It's important. And you'll see it even clearer when we look at the other major point Jesus is making. And this is why we're in this passage, okay? It took a long time getting there. But this is where, why it relates to what we're talking about with apologetics. Main point number two. You ready? So main point number one is hell is a real place. And we got to learn some things about it. Main point number two, people are converted because of God's word, not because of signs or miracles. Okay? People are converted because of God's word. Now, I'm not saying God can't use signs and miracles. He does many times in scripture. What I'm saying is, that's not ultimately what causes conversion in a person's heart. It's hearing the word of God. And Abraham makes this really clear in the story. The rich man, what does he think? He thinks, oh, I can warn my brothers. 
the way that they'll be converted, the way they'll change their minds is if they could see Lazarus raised from the dead and warn them, right? Like, could you imagine something so crazy to see like a ghost or a person standing there and being like, repent. I mean, this is like Christmas Carol kind of stuff, right? That's what works on Scrooge as he goes around and the ghosts show him everything. You think, wow, yeah, like for sure. Somebody would listen to that. But Abraham says, no, scriptures are enough. Right? And he's like, no, 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 Abraham, maybe you don't understand. If people come back from the dead, people pay attention to that, right? And Abraham says, no. Listen, if they're not going to listen to the Bible, then they won't be convinced from somebody raising from the dead. And that might seem very, very backwards to you, right? Like, no, no, no. It's much more convincing to see a dead person talking to me than it is to hear the word of God, right? I mean, aren't we all convinced through points of evidence? And the more convincing the evidence, the more convincing the case, right? That's how courts work. That's how science works. So why doesn't religion work that way? Well, first of all, it's not exactly how courts and science work. Right? People have been convicted on wrong evidence before. People hear a very convincing story and they believe it. Anything about science, um, yes, evidence is incredibly important and we use that to form our ideas, but we also have preconceived notions about the way things work. I mean, think about this. People existed for thousands of years without realizing that we revolved around the sun but they had basically the same information as the person who figured it out. It wasn't an issue of a lack of information. It was just a different way of thinking, okay? But even if we consider courts and science, religion, it is different. It is very different because it does involve specifically faith and the heart, right? Here is what Jesus is saying through Abraham in this story. If someone stubbornly doesn't want to believe, then they won't. Okay, I'll say that again. If somebody stubbornly doesn't want to believe, then they won't. And you say, what? Doesn't seem right. Wouldn't they believe if they saw someone raised from the dead? Maybe by now you've noticed the irony of this whole thing. Because who is it that rose from the dead and people did not believe? It's Jesus, right? So he's telling this parable to them, saying, you guys wouldn't believe even if someone rose from the dead. And they, I'm sure they certainly recognize on one level he's talking about them, right? And they're like, we would, we would believe. And then what happens, right? That exact thing. Okay, turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Or click your phone thing. Can you call it turning? I don't know how it works. John 11. Okay, John 11 is where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Okay, it's a very famous passage. We're going to start looking at verse 38. Okay, look with me. John eleven thirty-eight. So Jesus again, began, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. That's Lazarus's tomb. This is a different Lazarus, by the way. I know that's confusing. Like the two passages, the only two passages talk about him. We happen to read them both. Yeah, no, there, there's a few others that mention Lazarus, but this is a different Lazarus. So Jesus being deeply moved within came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. 
Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Let's keep reading. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that you may believe, so they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Okay, this is a really cool miracle, right? I mean, obviously any miracle Jesus did would have been cool. But I mean, think about it. Like the guy was dead. He was dead for four days. Everyone knew he was dead. That was there. They were there for a funeral. That's why they were there, right? They were all crying and people were really upset. And then Jesus, just like that, calls a man out of a tomb. And you think, wow, everyone must have believed at Jesus after that. Keep reading. Verse 45, therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. Yeah, see, just what we thought. Don't stop reading. 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. You think, that's not a big deal. They're just reporting news, right? No. These people, they're running off to the Pharisees and they're like, Hey, he just, he raised Lazarus from the dead. What do we do? Like, you believe. That's what you do, right? I mean, he's the son of God. No, 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 We, everyone's going to believe in him. Yeah, check this out. Look at, look at John chapter 12, okay? Um, let me see where I can find this. I didn't write it down. Okay, if you read in here, um, the Pharisees meet together and they say, well, we need to, kill Jesus because look, now the whole world is going after him. Okay. Because of Lazarus raising from the dead. Yeah, right here. Look at verse 17, chapter 12. So the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. For this reason, also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. I think what guys, he raised someone from the dead. Like, that's it. Your problems are over, right? I mean, that death is the number one problem, right? You could have it right now. He could fix it. Look at chapter 12, verse 9. The large crowd of the Jews that learned that he was there and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And get this, look at verse 10. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. I mean, the guy was just dead. You're going to kill him again? Like, do you see how backwards this is? This guy was dead. He's now alive. And all you can think is how to shut this up. They've got all the evidence they need to see that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he's the Messiah, that his claims are true, and they have no interest in it. Guess what? You remember? What happened after Jesus rose from the dead? Remember there were some soldiers there? And they went back and they told what happened, and they said, okay, it's fine. We'll pay you. Just keep it quiet. Say you went to sleep. Guys, 
these Roman soldiers just told you something crazy happened and you're not in the least bit interested, like, they don't care at all because they don't want it to be true. They're not interested in whether it's true or not. Let me tell you something. The Spirit is the one who opens our eyes. John MacArthur said, No miracle of any magnitude will convince someone who hears and understands the message of Scripture but rejects it anyway. Only the Holy Spirit can open blind eyes and melt hardened hearts to receive the word of God. And the truth of God's word is the only message with the power to save. That's how it works. Now, let me tell you something. This is a great encouragement for us as we share the gospel, as we evangelize. Because guess what? You don't have to do miracles. It's a close one, right? I don't know how to do that. And guess what? We don't have to be particularly clever or have irrefutable arguments or evidences. We just need to share the word. Because even if we could do miracles or give cleverly devised arguments, those things in and of themselves wouldn't save people. I had a professor at the Bible Institute I went to right after high school, and he said, if someone can talk you into something, then someone else can talk you out. It's true. If your faith is dependent on clever ideas and arguments, that's scary because they could fall apart at some point. Your faith needs to be in the person of Jesus Christ. That's where your faith needs to be. And this is also humbling for us because guess what? We can't make people saved. If God gave you the power to do miracles and you were raising people from the dead, listen to me, some people would still reject it. They would. That's exactly what Abraham is saying here. So let's think about the implications of what this passage means. Okay, there's two really big implications. Number one, hell is real. As a result, the unbeliever should fear it. And the believer needs to tell it. Don't be afraid to mention hell as you witness to people. Right? If you don't, you're doing a disservice. Jesus did. Now, that doesn't mean that you're thrilled about hell. Doesn't mean you make a mockery out of it. Listen to me. It's a terrible, awful thing. You don't want someone to be in there, but it is just. It is punishment for sin. And that's what God determined. So the first implication was that hell is real. The second one is people are not converted because they've seen enough evidence. They're converted because of the Holy Spirit. Okay? In other words, people are converted by the Holy Spirit's work on their hearts, not by the amount of evidence they've seen. The Pharisees constantly asked Jesus for a sign. Okay? Listen to the. Actually, you should flip over here. I'm going to make you do it. I'm in charge right now. Okay, Matthew 16. Look at Matthew 16. This is a really telling passage. Matthew 16, verse 1, we're going to look at. Okay, Matthew 16, 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up. You know that's bad news because they hate each other. And yet they're, they're joined on this one, okay? Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And you say, what's wrong with that? I mean... Other people ask for signs. Keep reading. Verse 2. But he replied to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. They're like, we, we asked for a sign, not a meteorology lesson. Okay? He's getting there. 
Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. He just walks out. Why? You're like, why, why didn't you want to show him a sign? Okay, you've heard this before, maybe. Red sky at morning, sailors take warning. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Okay, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Okay, so you can look at the sky. Sailors would do this to be able to predict what the weather would be like in the near future. Okay, immediate future. Um, it's a nice little thing we can do. So Jesus is saying, look, guys, you can look at the sky and you know what's going to happen, but you can't look at me and understand who I am. Hey, you're asking me for a sign. We're halfway through Matthew's gospel. There's been a lot of signs. There's been a lot of miracles. He has shown them miracle after miracle, and they've been present for many of them. And the text point that out, whichever gospel you're looking at, many times it says the Pharisees or the Sadducees were there watching the miracle. Many times they challenged him. And he's like, guys, I can't show you a sign to make you believe. Okay, that's not what this is about. And he said, you know what? You are going to get another sign. It's the sign of Jonah. What he meant by that was his resurrection, right? Because Jonah spent three days in the belly of the fish and came out. And so he was going to spend three days in the belly of the earth and come out. So he said, there is going to be another sign, but you guys are going to reject that one too. You're going to meet people like this in your life. If you haven't already, they're going to say something like, if God exists, then why didn't he just reveal himself? He did. I don't mean that like in a mocking way, but it's true. He did. And he revealed himself in amazing ways, multiple times. And he reveals himself even now through his creation and through his word. But even if he did reveal himself in a more majestic way, you wouldn't believe unless he's working on your heart, right? Now, I want to be really careful here because people might take this and run away with it. Evidence does matter. Okay. The Holy Spirit does use evidence. Don't get so carried away in presuppositionalism that you throw out all your evidence. Okay. That's ludicrous. God does use evidence. I mean, Jesus did signs and wonders to show he was the Messiah, right? Um, Paul used evidence to argue that Christ rose from the dead. Remember when he's saying, how do we know Christ rose from the dead? Because he appeared to the apostles and he appeared to James and he appeared to 500 people at a time. That's evidence. That's eyewitness testimony, right? So we can use evidence, but here's the point. Don't think that through evidence alone, someone must believe as a result. You can't force someone to believe. It's something that happens in the heart. So let's talk about personal applications now as we wrap up. I got two things for you to think about. Me to think about too. Do you have a skewed perspective of evangelism or apologetics? Number one, it's not about winning an argument. If it is, then it's not apologetics or evangelism, right? I, I hear people um, a lot of times who have like apologetics training, they love to go to 1 Peter 3.15, right? Um, always be ready to make a defense for the answer that's in you, for the hope that's in you, right? But you got to read the second half of the verse, but do so with gentleness and respect, right? You can't, it's not about winning an argument. It's about lovingly sharing the good news with people who are perishing. That's what it's about. Wanting to tell them the truth. And here's the deal. 
You can't make them believe as much as you may want to. You can't. But that doesn't mean you don't share. It just means you trust God to work on their hearts as you share. And God uses amazing things. I hear stories all the time of people who, like, got saved because they found a random track laying around. Or they're picking up garbage and they found a piece of the Bible and read it. You would, you would be amazed the things that God uses to draw people to himself. So don't think that you're insignificant because you can't speak well or because you don't know really clever arguments or you're not good with apologetics or whatever. Just share the truth of God. Share the gospel. So our second big application, right? We said, do you have a skewed perspective of evangelism or apologetics? If so, conform it to scripture. Our second personal application, let the reality of hell burden you to share the gospel with the lost. Okay, and I'm preaching to believers here in this way. Whoa. Um, you are not guaranteed tomorrow. The afterlife is real. Death is real. People die all the time. You know it. I know this is a real downer right after Christmas. But it's not because after death, something amazing awaits those who believe in Christ, right? Those who've repented of their sins. Remember that the need to repent is always treated as an urgent command in Scripture. It's never like, hey, when you think about it, maybe you could consider repenting. No, it's repent, exclamation point. You're not promised tomorrow. Repent. Our lives are but a vapor, right? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You don't know when Christ is coming back. It's like a thief in the night. You repent. So for the unbeliever, yeah, I want you to recognize the reality of, of hell and the reality of heaven and that there is um, judgment that awaits. And the only way to escape judgment is not by doing more good. The way to escape judgment is by putting your faith in the one person who could do only good, right? It's by allowing Christ to take the punishment that you deserve, which is exactly what he came to do on the cross. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for what you've shown us in your word. Thank you for giving us this passage, for helping us to understand that the heart plays a role in belief and the understanding of content. And Lord, we can harden our hearts, and many of us do, and even believers can do that to an extent. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to have soft hearts, to have listening ears, open up our eyes our minds, our ears, our hearts to understand what you have for us. Help us not to be like the Pharisees who tried to do everything they could to look good on the outside and cared nothing for their hearts and their souls. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? It's your name we pray. Amen.